Well, hello, and thank you for joining today's virtual global compliance roundtable, Navigating Risk and Crisis. My name is Stuart Jones, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Sigma Ratings. As background, Sigma Ratings is an AI-driven risk intelligence and ratings company based in New York, serving clients globally. We specifically help organizations leverage big data to automate and more holistically assess risk across people, companies, and countries via web-based and cloud-based data analytics solutions. As part of our work with global banks, broker-dealers, and corporate clients, we received a number of questions on the impact of COVID-19 on compliance, which led us to put this event together. I don't have to tell you that the world has fundamentally changed. How we work, who we work with, and how we generally think about risk and compliance in this new digital age. To cover as much ground as possible, we assembled a panel of experts who, we, who all have deep expertise in navigating and managing risk. We're excited to have this group together to learn from their experience and their perspectives. We also hope that this will be the first of many forums that will explore a variety of specific risk themes in the coming months. So stay tuned for more content. And finally, before brief introductions, I want to highlight that we will have plenty of time for questions. We will do our best to get to them all, but if for some reason we do not, please let us know by submitting a question via Zoom or by email after the event at hello at sigmaratings.com. Before I turn it over to our fabulous moderator, Stacy Warden, let me quickly introduce everyone starting with her. Stacy, our moderator, is an executive director of global market development at the Milken Institute, where she leads strategic initiatives on developing capital markets, innovative finance, and access to capital. Stacy is also an advisor to Sigma. Stacy previously worked at JP Morgan, NASDAQ, and the US Treasury Department, and works globally with a number of governments and emerging markets. She's also worked tirelessly on the challenging issue of correspondent banking de-risking, which is where we first met. As panelists, we are joined by Bob Warner, Bob leads a consulting practice, Green River Hollow. He is an advisor to Sigma. His background spans work at the state, federal, and global levels. He is the former global head of financial crime compliance at an international bank and led similar functions at two other US financial institutions. He also worked at the highest levels of the US Treasury Department as a senior advisor and also leading as a director of both the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network and the Office of Foreign Asset Control. Bob is joined by Zach Goldman, who serves as counsel at global law firm Wilmer Hill. Zach is an advisor to Sigma. In his practice, Zach focuses on financial crime, financial technology, and national security issues, with a particular focus on financial sanctions, anti-money laundering, cryptocurrency, and other novel payment technologies. Prior to Wilmer Hill, Zach served in senior roles at US Treasury and as a special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Department of Defense. And finally, Michael Greenwald is the director of Tiedemann Advisors, advising the firm's clients on a range of financial options and strategies. Prior to joining his current firm, Michael worked in senior diplomatic roles within the US government, including roles in Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. Among these roles, he served as the US Treasury Attaché to Qatar and Kuwait. Michael is a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center, is an adjunct professor at Boston University's Party School of Global Studies, and is a deputy executive director at the Trilateral Commission. With that, I'm very pleased to begin. I would like to now bring Stacey Warden in to moderate going forward. Stacey, thank you very much, and over to you. Thanks, Stuart. It's a real uh, pleasure and honor to, to be able to do this. So the 
title of this webinar is going to be the impact of COVID-19 on compliance. So what I want to do is I want to start with that impact and try to figure out and unpack what exactly that is. Then we'll move to how banks should be positioning themselves, uh, looking a little bit backwards, how might they have better positioned themselves in a perfect world, and given where we are now, what they might uh, do best uh, going forward, banks and financial institutions. And then the third kind of big bucket for the conversation will be the regulatory front. So what is happening on the regulatory front? What are my panelists hearing? What kinds of the regulatory strictness or potential regulatory forbearance is most important? And how are banks and financial institutions kind of navigating this this um, you know, sort of daily changing world. And then if we have time, because as Stuart said, we do want to leave time for questions, we'll talk a little bit about the role of central banks and maybe CBDCs and kind of US dollar dominance and what that means um, and what it means for that. So, um, but to start with the impact, um, I want you guys to put on your criminal hats and your, or your hyper kind of, um, paranoid hats and tell us you know what potentially could go wrong now what could criminals be doing to take advantage of this situation and uh bob and this is in no way my my dear audience to imply that bob most easily pivots to a criminal mindset at all <laughs> but uh bob i do want to start with you and you know you've been around the block so to speak a few times on this so what with your most paranoid hat on could, could be going on right now? And what should banks and financial institutions be particularly worried about? All right, thanks, Stacey, and, and welcome everyone. Um, so so I'll, I'll answer the question in two parts because I think it's also important to think about some of the compliance risks that flow from this for banks uh, and other financial institutions as well. Um, but from the, from the criminal perspective, unfortunately, we don't know all the risks because uh, criminals are extremely creative and adapt uh, very well. And so we'll learn some new ones in the course of, of this, um, this event. But, but some of the tried and true ones uh, that we all should be thinking about, of course, are, are scams and frauds. And um, they'll take a lot of, uh, a lot of different forms, but, but certainly we'll see a category of financial assistance um, scams where individuals who are in need are offered financial assistance by seemingly good guys uh, and, and, and women who um, are going to help them get money or lend them money or help them apply for uh, financial assistance. And what, what's really going on is either they're trying to suck fees out of them um, and then they'll disappear or even worse, they're, they're fishing. Uh, for uh, critical financial information, which they'll then use to hack their bank accounts and and their uh, impact their credit ratings and and other horrible things like that. The other area we'll we'll certainly see um, issues in is with respect to banks is going to be loans. Um, lots of people applying for loans under various programs, and I know we're going to talk about that at, in a little bit uh, in greater detail, but. Um, but applications from fraudsters uh, who aren't um, who they represent themselves to be aren't using the money the way they're supposed to, et cetera. Um, and, and then the, the third category that we're certainly going to see a lot of activity in is uh, charities. Lots of uh, fake charities out there uh, requesting uh, donations so that they can help all the people in need. Um, they, these are particularly pernicious in that um, they always have a 
wonderful mission, um, but the money's not going where it's supposed to go. It's it's going into the pockets of, of fraudsters and criminals, um, and and which is terrible because it it diverts that money from real charities. Um, I think we're also going to see some significant cybersecurity uh, risks um, from cyber criminals who uh, want to take advantage of the fact that that so many people now are working remotely um, and. Uh, often, uh, many of us are working on systems that weren't designed for the capacity that we're seeing uh, and, and may not have been designed uh, with the security in mind for the scope and extent of, of, of the work. So um, those are sort of the criminal, the major criminal things I see right off the bat. Um, and then from a compliance perspective, we're going to see issues around information privacy. Um, are people going to be allowed to print from home? How are they going to store documents? Um, as as uh, things are mailed to people, paper, um, how secure is that? How sensitive is it? Um, devices uh, being mailed to people, are they encrypted, flash drives, et cetera? So information privacy and, and security will be a, a significant issue. Also for, for banks, uh, with so many employees working remotely, the ability of the, of the financial institutions, not just banks, but, but other regulated institutions that have monitoring and surveillance obligations, um, how are they carrying those out, particularly when you have things like remote training, uh, trading and, um, and things um, that, that um, traditionally are done on site. Um, and then just the regular, the, the ordinary risk from lack of productivity or, or reduction in productivity that may result in backlogs, uh, slowdown and remediation, um, and uh, just the, the basic maintenance of processes and policies and programs. So let me, let me toss out, that's a very comprehensive kind of taxonomy of what could go wrong theoretically. Let me ask as a follow-up question, have any of you seen anything or heard anything in particular that's already sort of started nefariousness that's already going on or is this, um, has anything kind of popped its head up already? Well, I'll jump in. I mean, I think beyond that we've seen terrorist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, we've seen them tell their groups to uh, target Westerners um, given this virus. Even under that, I think from the family office perspective, we have to educate our clients on cyber risk, building on Bob's point. So it's an ongoing education. I mean, that cyber education begins uh, in the beginning, but I think during this time, you have to create an entire new education plan. And that requires, um, there also is a bit of wariness on DocuSign and how much protection there is in DocuSign because I think there is so many more documents being done virtually. So I think there needs to be education at every level as well. But I know Zach can build on the cyber discussion. Yeah, and I, just to add, uh, I think Michael's right. A lot of this is targeted at, at all our clients um, as, as much or more than at the institutions themselves. Um, one of the things that I've been hearing about are, are counterfeit goods or false um, goods represented to be something that they're not. For example, N95 masks that turn out to be um, you know, dust masks uh, is, a, is a classic example. But I think a, a lot of the um, uh, consumers need to be really careful about this, who they're buying from and how they can verify um, that, the, that the, um, the goods they're buying are, are what they're represented to be. 
and then price gouging in terms of you know the what people are being charged is something that that of course we're all seeing um, even even on some of the more standard uh, websites. I think I bought a couple of those uh, masks on Amazon actually. <laughs> um, Zach, um, let me follow up with you a little bit on the on the cyber and you know so for me or and, and I, I and again I'll throw this out to anybody for me. The JP Morgan trading uh, floor story was very sad um, about, you know, sort of the, the infection that took place because people were kind of called back onto the trading floor. But I can imagine running that business and being very uh, unclear about what to do. I mean, you don't, you maybe don't have the audit trails and the kind of mechanisms for people to work from home. You haven't thought about it. You haven't got, you don't have it sort of up to speed. You need people where you know, where they, where, they, where they should be, but at the same time, you don't want to put employees at risk. And how do you kind of think through those, those issues and what should, should banks um, be doing about that? Yeah, I, um, so thanks everyone and Stuart and Sigma for, for putting all these wonderful people together this morning. So, I, I mean, I think the, you know, as I understand it, banks are taking kind of varied approaches to managing cyber-related risks pertaining to things like insider trading controls and, and things like that, that there um, certain people are coming into the office who need to be in the office, but they're staggering shifts and breaking, you know, people up into different locations. So you have a sort of lower density of employees and people aren't putting each other at risk for, uh, for contracting COVID-19. Um, so, so I think, you know, they, they have, um, I think they have, so the larger banks have, I think, invested a lot um, in developing redundancy plans and disaster recovery and backups and things I'm assuming are not always working perfectly, but they're, they're working reasonably well. I mean, I think, I think the things that I think about from a systemic perspective are um, when you get below the kind of top tier financial institutions who have the resources and the personnel to really do serious advanced planning, um, what do the disaster recovery um, institutions, uh, disaster recovery responses and, 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 um, uh, and backup plans meant to manage crises like this look like? I mean, you know, we have over 10,000 banks and credit unions in this country, and I'm assuming you know, not all of them have the resources to really uh, have multiple backup sites and, and divide people in two and things like that. So I think thinking through systemic risk from, you know, that would, would derive from prolonged need, you know, many months of need to have people um, either working from home or working substantially reduced shifts in a, in a physical office in order to maintain the social distancing that's required. I mean, I think that's a really significant challenge in how you scale um, the kinds of uh, structures that the larger institutions have. So I think that's one one thing. Second thing, I, I want to just kind of build on some points that Bob made. I mean, I, I think there are, I would put sort of the risks that he described into two categories. One are risks principally focused on the financial institutions, and then the second are risks principally focused on consumers, mm -hmm. um, as to which the financial institutions have both a kind of a, a less ability to monitor and control risk and then um, diminish legal obligations with respect to those risks, right? So the kinds of consumer fraud schemes, you know, there are some legal obligations that attach to those, but that's principally about people being careful with where they send their money. 
um, whereas these lending programs are going to principally manifest themselves, or the risks attendant with these lending programs, rather, are going to principally manifest themselves as risks against the banks and sort of secondarily against the government that's guaranteeing these loans. Um, and so I think, you know, society folks need to think about these two different risks um, in different ways. And I would say that the charity risk that Bob identifies, which I think is a significant one, sort of sits at the intersection between the two, because those big charities or charities with poor reputations, you know, they are banked somewhere. They need to be banked somewhere. Um, and the messages from the bank, from the, from the regulators, from FinCEN, the OCC, and the like, um, has, has not necessarily been to relax BSA-related obligations, um, rather to introduce some targeted accommodations to the environment in which we find ourselves. Um, and, and I think the, the risks that Bob identified are exactly why um, the regulators are not advising folks to relax their uh, sort of allowing them to completely relax their AML program obligations because the risks are real and the financial institutions are uniquely suited in some senses to guard against them. Okay, so let's, let's talk about that sort of targeted accommodation in a, in a minute, but I want to stay on kind of what banks and financial institutions should be doing to right now. So now your, your business is probably less than it was before. You've got people all over the place you have a lot of pressure on you, you've got limited compliance budgets. What should you be spending your money on? If you had an agile organization, how should you be moving people and what, what, what should the priorities be? And maybe I'll just kind of go around the room, so to speak, and give some advice to, to banks and financial institutions, all of you. Sure. Like what, what should you be most focused on now? Um, Michael, I'll start with you. Sure, so I think what this crisis highlighted is which businesses have more sophisticated continuity of operations. So government, U.S. government has a continuity of government operation. And many businesses have crisis plans, as Zach pointed out, but this is not typical in any regard. So I think this highlights who is more tech savvy, who has invested in technology previously, and that's going to really make a difference. So I think I see this from the family office side working with institutions. Those who are fast, who are quick, who are agile, that can make uh, adjustments, that's where our clients want to go. And so I do think this is going to weed out certain institutions that haven't invested in technology. So right now, Stacy, I would say make a quick move, invest in technology and communication to your internal workforce. I think that's incredibly important is clear communication, ongoing communication, giving that what guidance. What do you mean on that clear communication? Put some, put some meat on that for me. Well, I think that you need to be setting out very specific guidelines of what uh, this continuity of operation is gonna look like. And so there needs to be a sense of structure. So in a time like this, you need to lay out what the next three months are gonna look like, give people signposts, give people structure, do a, you know, uh, a daily call to check in. Don't let your schedule just become loose. And I think that that's important internally, but I think it's also important to be proactive with your clients. I know from the family office side, we've been speaking to clients on a daily or weekly basis, not just on markets, but on education, given the crisis and the cyber concerns that Zach and Bob highlight. 
Okay, Bob, what should, what should uh, financial institutions be doing globally? Globally, yeah. So, so this, is a, this is an interesting event, right? Because um, all institutions do some level of stress testing and, and continuity of operation planning, but, but this is actually the 100-year event. This is at the extreme end of the, of the spectrum that everybody says, well, that's never going to happen during our, our lifetimes. Well, well, it just happened. And uh, what it's doing is putting a lot, of, um, a, a lot of scrutiny around the scalability uh, of operations um, because people had things in place, but they, weren't, they, they needed more so. They weren't enough. And so what we're seeing now are... So just uh, conference call capability. Um, the, a lot of institutions are scrambling now to expand their servers and, and their broadband capacities because they had the technology to have uh, interactive video calls, but not for as many people as, as were using it at one time. So the technology was breaking down and, and um, not, act, not being as effective. And so um, that's a classic example where, you know, it's hard to fault the institutions because, uh, again, do you plan at a capacity that's for a 100-year event um, day after day? Um, but the, I think what we're... What, what is, what, what, let me ask you that question. You know, you've got shareholders, you, but this could also happen to you, could put you out of business, something like this. What, what do you do? Yeah, so I think um, what we're learning is um, even, even if you don't uh, maintain a capacity level that's at the 100-year event, you have a very clear plan and the ability to get there quickly. So I think it's more about the ability to scale up effectively and efficiently um, than it is where you are at any one point in time. And, um, and I think the institutions that thought that through and, and had those plans in place are, had a much smoother transition to a, a close to business as usual operation than those that didn't. Um, and as Michael said, automation is just key. Uh, we, we saw a lot of institutions that continued to have to have employees come into the office because they hadn't automated some of the um, uh, the things they needed to have automated in order to remove them from the office. And then you've got, um, you know, one of the things that we're all going to have to do, regulators and in the industry, is, is scrub um, some of the archaic requirements that are out there, um, like wet signatures, which are required um, in, in many cases for certain products or, or uh, changes in business practice, um, release of funds, et cetera. Uh, again, that pulled people into the office um, physically having to be present. So I think um, the key, I think, would be scalability and the ability to, to move up the way you need to and then and automation. My brother's a competitive bridge player and his online bridge tournament provider had to go out and buy like three servers because uh, they were so overwhelmed by, they, they didn't plan for this kind of an There's event. There's a lot of bridge and canasta at our home right now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Zach, what, do you, what, 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 what would you tell uh, banks and financial institutions to kind of do now? They, they find themselves in this situation and what, you know, they, they're maybe a bit more clear on what they should have done, but right now, what can they do to kind of minimize um, um, the impacts going forward or take advantage of the situation going forward? So, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that I have anything to add to what Bob said about uh, disaster recovery and, and crisis response and things like that. I mean, the way I would think about this is to be more sensitive to risk 
identification procedures moving forward. So give, I think that you know, the imperative, so financial institutions across the board uh, have to face reductions in staff availability, potential reductions in availability of critical systems, things like that. Um, and that really forces them to prioritize risk management, which puts a premium on the ability to identify critical risks. And again, in an economy, um, you know, the U.S. banking system is different than the banking systems of many of our, you know, OECD peer countries in that it is highly fragmented. That fragmentation um, creates some systemic uh, uh, protections because it means that bank failures um, aren't necessarily as contagious as they might be and systematically significant as they might be. But it means that you've got lots of small institutions throughout the country with more limited resources. And so I think, you know, what would I think about if I was a general counsel or chief compliance officer of a bank, um, you know, kind of after the dust settles is how do I, how do I really invest in the capability to identify and in a very precise and tailored fashion, mitigate risk. Um, and, and, and then build my financial crime compliance programs around a much greater uh, or, or more enhanced risk identification and mitigation framework. That, that's how I would be thinking about this, because I think one thing that we've learned and that Vincent and the other regulators have recognized is that you can't do everything equally well. Um, and then when a crisis comes, you've got to really focus and prioritize. And so building the institutions that allow you to focus and prioritize in advance, I think is how you're going to mitigate risk um, when it really counts. Let me maybe just push back a little bit on you guys, because I've been hearing a lot of, you know, you need these plans, you need well-articulated plans, you need to focus on what's going on in advance, but like you have no idea. Nobody, you know, there's so much uncertainty at all levels. How do you, how can you actually do that good kind of planning? And I want to fold in as well a couple of questions that we've gotten uh, from the from attendees and and one is more specific about tech so are we thinking about um completely new technology systems are there band-aids and ways to improve the current technology systems where should those investments be how do you think about maybe tech in planning and then the the kind of a second question is a, a bit more about what happens when this is over what does the world look like and then what kind of planning would that mean is it is it a new world or is it going are we going to go back to the way we were before and how should how should financial institutions kind of shift their thinking uh, uh, going forward? Well, Stacy, I think we need to redefine the office. And I think we've that's been very clear through this crisis and even before. So I know many firms, their, their employees were able to literally, once they heard there was a case in their building or they were leaving town, they picked up their laptop, left, and when they sat down at home, they were working like they were in the office. And so, like I highlighted, I really think it matters how much you've invested in technology and getting over this antiquated view of the office. And I think uh, we get very, very much in the pattern. So whether it's investing in systems like Slack or Zoom technology or being able to really being able to communicate clearly, that's going to be important. So I think it's a reversal of mindset. And I think it's very clear to me, looking at some of my peers, who have invested in that and who are playing catch up right now. Yeah, I, I would add to that, but I guess I'm, I'm a bit schizophrenic 
about the whole um, the whole issue. I, I'm an old timer, so so the idea of people working remotely has always bothered me. It's bothered me because um, I my feeling was you lose uh, collaboration opportunities um, and you uh, it's diff more difficult to supervise from from a perspective of productivity and, and quality control. Um, but, but this has uh, taught me, uh, I guess this is, has taught me that, that there are ways um, to achieve a lot of that, uh, the benefits of an office environment um, while allowing people to work remotely. And um, there are things that you can do. Even, you know, I, I'm a, on the advisory board of, um, of, a, of a group that does testing for certification. Um, they're figuring out how to do, how to proctor remote test taking um, because it was thought that that was really not possible to do from a remote perspective. So I think it's pushing us to think about how we can achieve the benefits of, as, as Michael refers to it, the, the office um, in a remote environment. And um, I, I think if, if we get good at that, um, we're going to see people move away from the office environment because it's expensive. Um, and this is a, an efficient way to, to do business if you can get the, the, the benefits of that, that physical environment. Yeah, well, either that or people will be so happy to be near each other again that they... Uh... <laughs> okay, so I do want to leave enough time to kind of talk about regulation, but let me just bring up one other risk that somebody uh, brought up as a question, which I think is important for you guys to address. And this is this idea that um, you've got a combination kind of of a dropping in cross-border activity, but at the same time, so much fiscal, you know, coming from not just from national governments, but also from the IMF and the World Bank and so much cross-border flows. How do you think about that kind of cross-border financial crime risk? Should we be thinking about it differently? Should we be hyper worried about that now? And um, maybe just some thoughts in that, in that space. Yeah, so so I we are, you know, this is one of the points I made. I think in, initially we're we're going to see, um, we're going to see um, a lot of cross border activity that's related to frauds and scams, uh, and we always have, but but we're likely to see an uptick in it, um, and people will try and take advantage of of people's fear um, and anxiety. Uh, they'll they'll hope that the institutions are, are less well prepared to monitor and surveil, um, and um, all that will result in, in increased uh, increased activity that that's illegitimate. Um, but but having said that, um, uh, we know financial institutions know how criminals do this generally, and they can help protect their. Uh, their customers from this kind of activity, both, as Michael said, through training and education of their customers as to what they should be looking out for, but, but also in terms of tuning their automated scenarios and um, un in, in high net worth situations like Michael's familiar with, you know your client, you know your client's activity, and if you detect uh, aberrant behavior or things that are unusual, that, that's the kind of thing you should be jumping on. And so um, staying vigilant around their surveillance and monitoring um, and assurance processes within an institution is going to be really important. Is Zach, anything to add before we start talking about kind of what's going on regulatorily? Okay. All right. So what's going on regulatorily? 
regulatorily. So, you know, FinCEN has released guidance um, in the last couple of weeks, and the OCC and others have released guidance specifically about BSA-related matters. And effectively, what they're saying is um, two things. One is allowing, making very specific accommodations um, in certain circumstances, so allowing for delayed submission of certain reporting requirements um, and certain accommodations in the context of beneficial ownership collection information for existing customers. I think those are probably the two most impactful uh, changes that the regulators have made. But I think in, in, in FinCEN's guidance released last week, you know, they, I think they reemphasized, I think, what a lot of us have been saying explicitly, which is the importance of the risk-based approach. Um, and, 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 you know, I think when you really unpack what the risk-based approach means, um, it means that you have to, it, it recognizes that resources are limited and that financial institutions have to prioritize um, the highest risk, you know, customers, accounts, products, services, geographic areas, et cetera. So again, you, you know, what I'm thinking most about as I think about responses, both in the context of the crisis and then when we move beyond it, hopefully sooner rather than later, how do financial institutions and others need to think about re reconceptualizing their compliance architectures, um, you know, risk really being very sophisticated and precise in thinking about risk and then building programs around identified risk is, is where I, uh, I would invest my energy. Bob, what are you seeing out there? Well, and, and I saw there's just another question that came in that's spot on. Uh, we, we've got um, all kinds of, of government programs globally uh, coming into play. Um, a tremendous sense of urgency um, politically and economically to, to provide assistance. Um, and, and institutions that were already strained by um, their remote operational capacities, um, it's, it's almost a perfect storm for institutions in terms of trying to find the ability to balance um, the need to, as Zach said, to, to apply um, appropriate controls around who are these people who want these loans? Do we know them? Do we know what they're gonna use them for? With the need to get the, <laughs> the relief to the, to the public as it's intended. Right. And, and it's gonna be a tough one because in the moment of the crisis, particularly the, the political um, branches of government will be screaming, banks, you're slowing things down, you're disrupting the process, um, get, get, that, get that, those funds out. But after the fact, they're also gonna be the first ones to say you had inadequate controls, your infrastructure was terrible, you allowed rampant fraud, you wasted money, you diverted resources from people who needed it. So um, the institutions better, um, they, they better be careful uh, and how they administer this. And, and some of it too is that the programs are not clear. Forms are changing, guidance is changing, guidance is inconsistent. Um, and so the, the financial institutions need to push back on that as well and say, look, we wanna comply, we wanna move these things administratively through the process, um, but you need to give us, um, uh, instead of changing your, the standards every day, you need to give us a clear set of rules around how we're supposed to administer this stuff. You know, there's a question that puts uh, that addresses that a little bit more finely, which is, you know, how much should banks be actually paying attention to this, given that the guidance changes and is as can be a bit contradictory at times, etc. So, 
should you, I mean, of course, you're, you're going to say they should take it seriously, but how, how, do, how should banks think about kind of keeping up? Yeah, I mean, again, it, that's the conundrum, right? Because in, in the moment, there's tremendous pressure um, to just get the relief uh, to the businesses and people who, who desperately need it, and they do desperately need it. Um, but, but after the fact, regulators historically have shown an ability to time travel and to tell uh, um, financial institutions they regulate, well, yeah, we wanted you to get it out, but we wanted you to get it out safely and, and deliberately, um, and you didn't because your program was inadequate and it should have been better at the time and you should have known at the time. And so institutions should expect they're gonna have a retrospective view applied to everything they do today that's going to be in, in, you know, in, with 2020 hindsight. And so um, I guess my, my advice, and it has been my advice to my clients is, put resources into moving, um, put the personnel and, and the technology that you have into executing these programs, but do not compromise uh, your standard, uh, well-known risk uh, assessment and, and uh, mitigation processes, because if you do, it's gonna bite you um, uh, in a year or two when everything's settled and, and all the auditors come running in to, to look and see how these programs were executed. Yeah, and Stacy, I think institutions also really need to be agile during this time because you saw with the disbursements here in the US, the House was considering creating a digital dollar. And that would mean for the Fed to be sending out those payments digitally and that may come in a future stimulus. So I think not only do banks in the US need to be prepared, but other central banks around the world and institutions may be seeing more use of digital currency and crypto. And as Bob and Zach know, that opens up a whole host of risks and implications, not only for the future of the dollar, but for currency and disbursements uh, moving forward. So. I think it's gonna be a constant ability to adapt. And I think those are gonna be the institutions that ultimately are gonna be most successful once the dust settles is who can adapt quicker and to Bob's point, who can do it in a safe manner. Zach, do you have anything to say to that or um, on the end this round? No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously agility is incredibly important. And I think, you know, that, that there's no perfect solution um, and, and balance is key. I mean, I think abandoning time-honored controls not only um, is, is, is going to be counterproductive um, from a particular institution's perspective because you open yourself up to post-hoc criticism, but also, you know, frankly, undermines the objectives of these programs, which is to say that if you know, criminals are getting access to finite, you know, a large, you know, th these programs are huge, $350 billion in small business support is a lot of money, but this is a big country. Um, and, and you know, every dollar that goes to a criminal or a fraudster is a dollar that does not go to a small business facing a real need. Um, and so I think it, it is counterproductive to, uh, to, to abandon kind of time-honored controls on, on distributions of funds and access to loans and things like that. Okay, um, let me be a schizophrenic client. So I, I, and I'm going to be a bank and then I'm going to be a policymaker and I'm going to ask you for advice. You know, on the one hand, I'm a bank. I'm telling you, look, 
in the United States, this PPP program, I get to charge 1% annually on loans, a two-month loan. I'm maxed out at 2.5 times payroll. This loan's going to be $500,000 kind of mostly if I'm lucky. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make about 800 bucks on that loan. Uh, you really want me? And AML, CFT has high fixed costs. Are you advising me to, to give this loan to new clients? I mean, wouldn't I just, I'm happy to extend this to clients that I already know, but like, you're, you can't possibly be telling me that I should extend this to clients I don't know. Now I'm a policymaker and I'm saying, look, this, this PPP assistance is not just meant for the good clients of the SBA um, that, provider banks. Like this is meant to be a policy for the, the country. So what, what advice do you give me? How, how, how can you help us walk that path? It's a tough one. Um, it, it's because of course the banks are going to want to deal with the people they already have uh, the KYC on. And I can see how um, in many cases that might undermine the principles of the program. I, it, it's a tough one for me. Um, and, and some of it may go to, to how well I'm how familiar I am with the way the SBA um, provisions work and, and how many banks are participating in it. But any, any legitimate small business that has payroll and rent is, is likely, overwhelmingly likely to have a bank account. I mean, there, there could be exceptions to that, but, but they're gonna be far and few, which means they, they've got a relationship with a bank. Um, I, I guess the question is whether the bank they have a relationship with has access to this program or not. And um, it, it may be that the way um, in the future, I, it may be too late now, but going forward that, that we need to, to deal with that is um, have provisions for those banks they have a relationship with essentially to act as a broker for them with the, um, the banks that are in the provider uh, system. And that can, could greatly expedite, I believe, the, um, the ability of the provider banks to process their applications, particularly if they've got a, a regulated institution mm -hmm. who's representing that customer. So a little better reg tech, soup tech also could be, uh, could be what's in order as well. Yeah. yeah. All right, so we're getting some questions really coming in. And in the last 15 minutes, why don't I just um, start going through them and anybody can kind of take them and use them as well as an opportunity to, to give additional thoughts. But you know, how flexible should regulators be to innovate now versus doubling down on controls that people know already and trust? Is this a, is this a space for innovation right now or should we just uh, be, be extra cautious? I think it, I mean, I think, I think it's a little soon to be um, extra innovative right now. I think that there is so much happening that you need to see, I think, give it a little bit more time and make step-by-step -step adjustments uh, to make sure that you are uh, being uh, proactive, but also um, safe regarding that laws and new guidelines are changing and are in the process of being drafted. So I think you do need to be uh, innovative and agile, but at the same time, you need to be patient. Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, in, in 2018, FinCEN and the banking regulators released a statement on their support for innovative approaches to BSA compliance. That support was reiterated in the guidance that FinCEN released last week. Um, and if there's any time to, you know, I wouldn't say experiment, but I, I would say 
hopefully reinforce processes of innovation that have existed already, this is it, right? I mean, when else are you going to start to put these kinds of uh, solutions to the test? Um, you know, again, I think doing so in a controlled and incremental fashion is critical, not abandoning established processes. But if there are places where, you know, some new uh, software programs or new ways of managing data flows can help uh, incrementally relieve burdens on, on, you know, compliance systems that are stretched to the max, this, you know, might be a, a way to, to, to do it in a controlled fashion. Okay, let's um, let's go back to uh, I think an interesting question about sort of the bank lending programs and some of the unintended consequences there. Is there maybe going to be as an unintended consequence a kind of flight to quality for lending with a government guarantee and to the detriment of regular lending that is based on sort of creditworthiness and due diligence? Do you see a kind of a shift uh, coming out of this uh, afterwards that could be problematic? I, my own view is that, that in the short term, you will see that because the, the focus now is on these programs and executing them and they're intended to provide a basis for banks moving money quickly at, at little, little or less risk to the banks. I, I don't think it's going to be a long-term phenomenon. I, I, I think once these programs wind down, um, particularly given some of the politics around them, that, that you'll see banks... Um, refocus on their traditional lending activities. Okay, um, and then a couple of questions going back more towards a global tilt. So one is, what about a, and, 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 and again, kind of bringing up this cybersecurity element again, what about a coordinated global attack on the world, global correspondent banking system? How worried should we be about that? Is this not a good opportunity for that? How, how would we think about that? And then as a related uh, question, is this going to, is, does COVID-19 itself bring geopolitical uh, changes to the world that maybe increase the risk factor of certain areas, certain geographical locations versus others, or certain kinds of business or certain kinds of flows that, is there a shift in the way, way that we should be thinking about those risks? So maybe I'll open that up and maybe for this one, I see some nodding. So I'll just kind of go around the room. Michael, I'll start with you. Sure. Well, I'll take the second part, Stacey. I think, uh, Geopolitically, we're seeing uh, an ongoing great power competition uh, continuing between the U.S., uh, China, Russia, and others. I think the key question when this crisis started was where are supply chains going to move going forward? Is there going to be as much reliance on China for supply chains and businesses and how are they going to uh, change their operations moving forward? So I think the supply chain will be a very important space to watch. Geopolitically, it's all about narrative. It's which country is coming out of this stronger, who has handled it better, who's sending supplies, and who's taking the lead. So I think China's obviously trying to constantly rewrite its own narrative and use uh, propaganda to do that. I mean, if you look at a country like New Zealand, for example, and their leader there, they have been very proactive in this regard. So it'll be interesting to see how they come out of this economically. But ultimately, this is a time where there are a lot of weaknesses being um, brought to air. And I think it's gonna be important 
to see whose narrative can be uh, most clear and strengthened after this. Okay, Bob, how about you? And also on the correspondent banking and the geopolitical and- Yeah, um, the correspondent banking question is a really, I think that's a really interesting one. Um, we know that in times of crisis, which increase vulnerability, that, that's when, um, when there's increased likelihood of systemic or systematic attacks um, on, the, on the vulnerable institutions. I, I think the idea of a coordinated attack on the correspondent banking system is an interesting one, um, most likely to come from a, a rogue regime, to be honest, rather than criminal enterprise, um, someone looking to maximize disruption, uh, so a regime or, or, or collective. Um, and I, I think it's most likely to come if it comes um, on the payment platform that, that, that are used to process the payments, probably outside of, of financial institutions' proprietary systems. So um, if I were SWIFT, I would be, for example, incredibly vigilant right now about uh, a systemic attack on, on the SWIFT network um, and, and other uh, payment systems of that kind. Um, and this is, you know, to go back to a previous comment um, that Michael made about crypto, you know, this is also where um, people are going to begin to see the value of a more simplified uh, payment system and a more modern payment system, uh, like like the blockchain technology that's out there. Uh, and um, so it may have implications for what people see as viable and, and attractive going forward. As a yeah, I mean, I, I would add to that. I think you've seen the statistics to bear out Bob's comment that, that certain in particular stable coins, which are privately issued crypto tokens that are tied to an underlying asset, usually a currency like the dollar or the pound or the euro or something like that. Um, there's been a spike in volume in those stable coins in the last couple of weeks, which suggests that, that folks are moving transactional activity into these kind of parallel, parallel platforms. I, I mean, I think the, it's interesting to think about an attack on a payment network and stressing correspondent banking systems. My impression, and this is purely anecdotal, is that the, the, the risk conceived of both in terms of likelihood of, uh, of action and, and magnitude of impact is lower now because transactional activity and economic activity as a general matter is substantially reduced, right? Um, and, and so I, I worry there are certain types of systems that are getting stressed, but I think it's because they're being used in ways that they were not intended. And I think Michael and Bob did a great job of addressing these kinds of risks at the, in the beginning part of the hour. Um, but I don't, I don't get the sense that the global correspondent banking system is buckling under the weight of you know, transactional activity or, or, or things like that. I, in my sense is, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, I think the real risk from a from a kind of malicious actor attacking perspective, and I think you know, folks addressed this in the in the discussion, is that you know security personnel at these institutions have been affected in terms of their ability to do their jobs, just like everybody else has. And it's not that the weight of the pressures are are overwhelming them; it's that you know. There are gaps and seams that didn't exist, you know, a month ago, owing to the fact that people are 
are facing unprecedented challenges just in doing their day-to-day -day job. And, and I think Stacey, both on the cybersecurity front and on the financial crimes compliance front, right? That like that malicious actors who want to take down systems may have a slightly easier time doing so, and malicious actors who try to want to who want to try and exploit the system for financial gain may have a, an easier time doing so. Yeah, and Stacy, I think what you're seeing geopolitically, in addition, is the dollar. The U.S. dollar is under attack not only by China, who is going to be coming out with its own digital currency, but you're seeing workarounds play out uh, with the European system to have humanitarian payments with Iran, with other central banks creating uh, digital currencies. And there's a, a mantra that there's going to be a basket of currencies a trend going on, even with a surging dollar, I think there's going to be a constant attack on the U.S. dollar because they don't want to be tied. Uh, countries don't want to be tied regulatory risk-wise to the dollar. And so you're going to see that trend play out, and it's going to be very interesting for banks globally to watch how other countries treat the dollar whether they're pegged or not, it's gonna be very interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, so any predictions there about sort of, and you don't mean the dollar in terms of the relative value of the dollar, of course, you mean the, the dominance of the US kind of financial um, system. Right now, dollars, I think it's like 60, 65% of export volume, and it's about 60, 65% of reserves worldwide. Are we going to see that number go down in the next five to 10 years, do you think, gentlemen? I think the, the dollar's dominance is going to continue. I don't see the global reserve status changing anytime soon, but I do see there's going to be more of a basket of a currency's approach, and you're going to have more optionality. So the dollar is predominantly the leader right now, and it's going to take a long time for that to, to change. But you are, and, and during a crisis, as we've seen during this, everybody wants dollars. Everybody wants dollars on hand, and you've seen central banks trying to keep more dollars within their systems. So I think going forward, it's going to be, can central banks regulate digital currencies? And if central banks play that role and it starts to become part of the norm, even if the Fed starts it with these surplus payments, that's going to be uh, an important trend to watch. All right. Yeah, I think, just, okay. just to emphasize Michael's point, I mean, you know, treasuries are the classic flight to safety asset. That trend has only been kind of emphasized in the last couple of weeks, right? Interest rates at sort of uh, all-time lows, and I, I don't see that changing. I mean, you know, we have seen over the last several years, episodically, people shifting to different currencies in certain circumstances, but I think the status of Dollar-denominated bonds and you know and 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 U.S. government debt as a as a flight to safety asset, I think, has only been reinforced. Okay, Stuart, I see you you you're coming in to to wrap us up. We've had a we've got a couple of more questions, but they are still, I think, in the zip code of some of the themes that we've talked about. So we can. Uh, Stuart, you can kind of get some email responses if you want to those. Um, but why don't I turn it back to you? I want to just, before I do though, thank you guys for your insights and your, your willingness to kind of 
go out on a limb a little bit and 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 say things. And I think it was a, a super interesting discussion, and we're we're very uh, happy to have you on it. And Stuart, why don't I turn it now to you to kind of sum up? But you need to be off of mute in order to do that. It's very technically. You know, we've had a lot of guidance from Michael and others about the importance of understanding technology going forward. <laughs> we, we have, we have a, we have a resiliency plan at, at Sigma. Uh, I, I will tell you. You're, you're a very good plan. Um, a very good plan. Well, first of all, um, we are on the hour. Thank you very, very much, Stacey, uh, for bringing so much energy uh, to the to the discussion. Great, great discussion uh, overall. Thank you, Bob. Uh, you know, for joining us. Uh, it looks like you have the best view uh, in the background of everyone, so stay safe. Uh, Next one is going to be at your house, Bob. Yeah, yeah we're going to go to your house, Bob. Um, and, and Zach, thank you as well. Uh, we, we had some technical challenges, but thank you for uh, bringing your wisdom and insight as always. And, and Michael, um, thank you as well uh, for joining us. Uh, I think just a tremendous panel. We hope to do more. If, if this is the sort of content that folks are interested in that have joined in, please um, email us, um, hello at sigmaratings.com. Um, if you did not get your question answered, uh, we will try to respond to all questions. Just please send them in there. Um, and then also the sort of last housekeeping item is that we will be making um, a recording of this uh, available. Um, stay tuned for details on that. But Thank you again for, for everyone uh, on the panel. Thank you, Stacey, uh, and thank everyone from around the world uh, who took an hour uh, out of their time to, to learn and, and to participate in, in what I think was a great discussion. So with that, I'll sign off. Thank you, and uh, we'll be in touch. Stay safe. Uh, great thanks, discussion. Everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.